I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, Finding Yourself in Life's Little Moments. Hi, dear listener. So I'm sitting on my favorite bench overlooking the vast Pacific. It's late afternoon, and I've just had a lovely chai latte, (laughs) a two-hour-long process, which um, allowed me to just sit and enjoy my favorite cafe here near the water and uh, hang out watching a friend of mine who's a barista there and a bartender and some of the other nice young people, um, you know, do their work. And, And it was so busy, like, we were all sort of saying that we'd never seen it as busy as it is because of course people are on holidays here now in Australia and um, this is a place where people come and really love to be near the water and swim and come with their families and so it's really a tourist uh, touristy spot and that particular cafe is an especially touristy spot so I like the fact that I live so close and uh, and can come and easily and hang out with people that I'm sort of, you know, friendly with and uh, enjoy my chai tea latte with almond milk, unsweetened. So anyhow, I don't know if it's going to be too windy. I think I'm actually going to just move a little bit. Hold on. So this podcast will be a kind of reflection. I'll be reminiscing about some aspects of my life that I feel are quite I don't know, have, have bordered on the comical and, um, and the sort of unusual and uh, anyway, I hope that you enjoy it. So the topic of this podcast is a vehicle, um, one of the two topics which you'll see. And that vehicle is a checker cab. And whether you're from the United States or from New York, like I am, or from sort of any other part of the world, you probably would recognize this uh, kind of iconic vehicle. Um, It was the traditional cab, taxi cab, that was used in New York City. And um, it came into my life when I was about... 11 or 12, which was sort of the perfectly wrong time for this vehicle to come into my life when I was growing up in a suburb of New York called Dobbs Ferry. So I'm walking a little bit here, getting out of the wind. Um, Now, as I've mentioned before, I I sort of love cars and uh, my family has owned some interesting vehicles, some of which have been fairly unreliable, but nonetheless uh, interesting. And... um, in 1969, my mom uh, received as a gift from my grandfather. My grandfather bought a car for my mom. My mom had just had a pretty bad accident, and she it was hard for her to drive. And I think my grandfather thought that this car would actually be um, helpful to her. The car was also incredibly cool. So it was a 1969 Chevy Camaro, all right? And it was... A gorgeous gold color with a beige vinyl roof and the interior was beige vinyl 
or not vinyl, I think it was probably leather, beige leather upholstery in the inside. And uh, that was probably the coolest car, you know, that I could imagine <laughs> our family having. My mom was, um, you know, endeavoring to get back on her feet literally and uh, figuratively. And that car was what my grandfather gave her. So, but as it would turn out, it wasn't so great because the, um, you know, the, the bucket seats were really uncomfortable for her. So a couple of years later, 1971 or 72, again, when I was like 11 or 12, my mom traded that car in for what was the least cool vehicle in town. And that was a checker cab. And again, if you can, you know, if you've seen sort of movies made in New York from sort of the mid-1900s, you know, mid-20th century or so, even later, whatever, or earlier, you know, that car is, um, was the iconic vehicle uh, in New York City taxi. And my mom was advised to get one because she was having a lot of orthopedic problems. And that cab, it was actually white, it wasn't yellow, was, uh, you know, was, was really comfortable, much more so than anything with bucket seats. So we went from having the coolest vehicle in town to having the most odd vehicle in town. And when you're entering your teen years, having the coolest vehicle in town is incredibly important and having a really odd vehicle as your family car it can be something like mortifying so the thing about the checker is that it was cavernous it was huge and I'll always remember my mom I wasn't driving yet my mom driving I was in the front seat, my mom driving down the main street of Dobbs Ferry, which is the village I grew up in, the town I grew up in, and um, past the pizza place, you know, and I'd see, like, friends of mine or people that I knew or whatever from, you know, sort of middle school or high school hanging out there in um, outside the pizza place. And here we'd come down the main street in the checker, and the one thing about the checker was that it was big enough that I could drop down onto the floor and pretend that I wasn't actually in the car and, and basically hide so that nobody would see me driving in this car with my mother, you know, down the main street of the town I grew up in. And that was the consolation, was that it was big enough that you could easily hide and not be seen. So anyway, um, what was interesting is that in life... Okay, things change. A person changes, circumstances change, things change. Things that might have not been acceptable or cool or any of that suddenly shift in their meaning. And what happened was that I went, um, I went off to college, you know, after a few years and graduated from high school, went off to college. I went to Princeton, all right. And in my sophomore year at Princeton, my mom decided that um, she was so enamored of the checker that she was going to get another one. So she ended up keeping the white one and then getting a brown one. 
dark brown and similar design everything was sort of similar about it and she had two so what she did bless her heart was she let me use the white checker and I ended up taking that car to school and having it as a vehicle you know at school and what was really interesting was that the vehicle that had been sort of the bane of my existence as a young teen the least cool most odd family car in in the village I got this car to take to Princeton with me to have a vehicle on campus which was itself pretty pretty great you know like not every student had a vehicle I had a vehicle and what I began to realize that was that I actually at Princeton by that time which was the late 70s with this with this checker cab I, that I had what would turn out to be the coolest vehicle the most identifiable coolest vehicle on campus okay this white checker that I drive around and people knew people knew you know began to know it you know because it was pretty pretty stood out you know it really stands out so um that's one of those you know interesting kinds of shifts where again like I was saying uh you know I was sort of mortified driving around this car you know in this car with my mom to actually once I got to college loving the fact that I had this car because it was so distinctive so and different and unique unusual you know no one else had one and I felt you know like it sort of I stood out so that was pretty interesting um and what I'm going to do now dear listeners read a little bit of a description of from a second memoir that I spent some time writing um I published one memoir and uh and then a couple of years ago two three years ago when I left my um my marriage I began to write a second memoir wasn't also um kind of um I don't know what the word is you know it was you know it had some tough stuff in it and uh but I was just reading through it again because I stopped writing oh maybe a, a year or so ago I just felt like I needed I don't know I guess I just felt like it was just hard to write at that point and so I just actually pulled it up um, yesterday to reread again and what came to me was just to reread everything I written which was like a hundred pages you know of it had been written again you know starting from when I was young it, it depicts my early life and goes on through kind of really not pulling a whole lot of punches about things that happened to me and um, and and sort of just laying out a lot in a very um, very human way so but uh, I just thought to myself, you know, I think I'll read this one little chapter um, about some of the experience that I had at Princeton, right, which had to do with this checker and it had to do with something else, which it ended up, ended up becoming my major, which was photography. And, you know, I, I sort of thought I would go into music, you know, it was sort of natural to think that I would go into music when I got to college, but... As I've depicted, I think, in one of my podcasts, when I um, I was assigned a piano teacher, and after having been with a wonderful piano teacher growing up, it was strange to suddenly kind of be assigned somebody. But from the pretty much the moment that I 
had my first lesson, I just knew it wasn't really going to work um, for various reasons. It just, it just, it wasn't going to work. And so I ended up ultimately going into visual arts and photography, which I'd always loved. And the checker would come in very handy. So this is the, I'm going to read a bit from this chapter um, about the, uh, the experience of studying photography and um, at Princeton. And so here we go. So in my junior year, I guess it was my junior year of college, mom loaned me the checker, the New York style taxi that was our family car. As I mentioned to you, dear listeners, she'd become so enamored of the vehicle that she bought another. And I began driving the checker around Princeton, realizing that what had been an embarrassment in my high school years became the coolest vehicle on campus. However, and this is all true, the car was a few years old and several functions were unreliable. And as I've mentioned, dear listener, you know, one of the things that I feel like, you know, when you can look back and, and wax poetic about times gone by, one of the things that's really improved are our cars, okay? So the checker had this very sort of strange kind of placement for the button that would control the headlights and that you would press to make the headlights go from low beams to high beams. That button was on the floor, all right, under where your left foot, you know, could reach. And so you would press <laughs> this button and you would go from high, low beams to high beams or vice versa, high beams to low beams. Now, in the Northeast, your listener, that's just, it, it, that's just bad, that's just bad design, you know, that's just, that's a design flaw because, first of all, you're driving around in the winter, okay, and they salt the streets and things get corroded, you know, under cars. And so if, if there's a button that controls the headlights on the floor of the vehicle and those wires go to the headlights, chances are over time, and this is what happened, those wires got corroded, you know, they got corroded. Why? Because you're driving around, you know, and salt and, and, and all this stuff and rain and whatever else. And... Um, yeah, no, not good. So anyhow, um, by the time I got the vehicle, which was in the late 70s, um, as I said, some of the functions were unreliable. One of them was the headlights for the reason that I just elucidated. And uh, to switch on the high beams, I'd have to press my foot on the metal button near the brake pedal. That's also bad. You know, that just, just doesn't make sense. So with time, that button had rusted out. And one night, okay, I was driving back from a party. Now, dear listener, I've never, I've never done a lot of drinking, and I definitely don't drive. So I wasn't drunk, but I was with a friend who was a little drunk, and he lived in the same dorm that I did. His name was Jim. He was from the South, right? And we were driving, so he was in the checker in the, in the passenger seat. I was driving, and uh, we were going down leaving the um, the eating clubs, which were like the social clubs, and heading back to where I parked the car and the dorms and so on and so, so forth. And I, you know, as we were driving, it was dark, it was night, I pressed the headlight button, right, on the floor to activate the brights, right, the bright lights. At that point, what happened was that the lights, the headlights, went off completely, right? So whatever it was, shorted out, you know, that shorted out, and suddenly... It was completely dark. 
no headlights. The asphalt in front of us melted into a sea of black. As my eyes adjusted, I began to navigate by the orange-hued streetlights. Jim, I said, you'll have to be the lookout. And in that moment, he rolled down the window, craned his neck towards the street, and called to some of the pedestrians that were on the sidewalk, Look out! Look out! He was the lookout, and he just figured that he would just call, Look out! We're, <laughs> we're coming! <laughs> and we both just cracked up. But uh, the thing about it was that the checker gave me freedom. You know, the checker provided freedom. What had been a sort of um, the bane of my existence and, and uh, what worked against my standing socially, at least in my, in my mind's you know, and what I thought was the case in high school, um, actually worked for me in many ways once I got to college. And by that time, I'd chosen my major, which was visual arts, photography. And the reason for that, dear listener, was really interesting because, you see, I got to Princeton, which is a, a good school, okay, and I went partly, you know, significantly on the strength of my, my arts, my music and my art and my poetry, I submitted all sorts of examples of my, my poetry, my writing, okay, my, my photographs, um, my musical, uh, you know, audios, um, recordings of performances that I'd done, and, and it was sort of all the stuff that, that helped get me in, right? It helped me, it helped me get me in. But what was interesting when I got there and what I realized uh, now later is that how we how you see when we're doing anything we we reveal really the most tender part of ourselves okay especially if you're writing poetry all right especially if you're doing anything creative but even in general you write a paper you know it's a tough thing i say this you know thinking of my friend whom i i'm sort of dedicating this podcast to right it's a really delicate thing right when we do something it's um you know it it we've made an effort right and how someone responds to that can make or break us it can make or break our relationship to those things that we might have otherwise um loved doing in the past felt gratified doing in the past whatever the case may be and when i got to princeton i studied i entered a poetry i took a poetry writing course with a poet who was kind of fairly well known but um he just couldn't relate to my poetry. Now, there's a real problem, you see, dear listener. This is, this is a real problem, and this is why I teach the way I do. Because, see, I have to make space, all right? A person has to make space for the sheer creative inspiration inside another human being. It might take a very different form than what one naturally feels comfortable with or thinks is valuable, whatever the case may be. You don't look at the, 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 you know, the, um, the product of a person's creative endeavor. You look at where that creativity came from, right? And you don't deny it. You nurture it. You support it. You, you say yes to it, you know. So that person doesn't become disconnected from the source of their own creativity. But unfortunately, man, I really did. Because this guy was just, he really just, he didn't, I think he was just an unhappy person. <laughs> he was probably not a happy person. I don't know, but he didn't do, he didn't do justice to my 
love of poetry. He didn't. And he was telling me all sorts of things about how what I was writing wasn't good. And it really turned me off writing. That was the tragedy of it. That was the tragedy of it at a place like Princeton, right, where you'd think you'd get the best, you know, sort of, um, um, uh, you know, instruction. People are coming by. So you'll hear, um, right? But it really can make or break your you know, your soul, man. It can really, it can have a huge effect on how you end up living your life. And, you know, let alone writing or doing whatever it is that you love to do. You know, how someone responds in those, especially in those tender years, but generally, it's really something. I mean, I didn't plan to talk about this particular thing, but now that I'm talking about it, I just think, oh my gosh, it's so crucial how we respond to each other is so crucial because when someone puts himself out and in general, you know, it's that person, they're just trying to do something they're endeavoring to do. They're putting themselves out in a way that they love, right? If something through something that they love a medium, like, you know, writing, like I said, or music or art, whatever it is. And a teacher doesn't have the right, okay, to tell them they're wrong. That's my thought, right? They just don't. So... There are a lot of expletives I could use right now. Okay, you can imagine them all. So anyway, you know, it's like... Anyway, you get it. So, but I went into photography as a result because um, I was turned off, you know, writing and, and piano didn't work out, you know, with this teacher that I had. I just, I couldn't relate to her. I mean, she was a nice enough person, but it was stylistically and temperamentally, it was very different from what I'd grown up with, so I ended up going in photography. And um, that's when the checker really came in handy, because the checker was a big car, and I ended up doing photography that required, you know, that used big equipment, right? Now, you may have seen sort of historic photographs of old, you know, of, of people back in the 19th century, back in the 20th century, using um, using these big cameras, they're called view cameras, and they sit on tripods, and as I'm telling you this, this, this it's, it's just very interesting, because this person just came up, and she's looking at the ocean with her little iPhone, and she's photographing the ocean with her iPhone. None of those photographers could have ever imagined that Billions of people around the world would be photographing nature and every other thing themselves, you know, using something that you could put in your pocket, all right? So I ended up studying with somebody who was really, two people who were really renowned, um, and this was back in the late 70s and 80s, so digital photography had not yet been in, you know, it was not yet uh, the standard at all, and um, I was shooting film, I was shooting film, and it was just incredible. So I was influenced by these two photographers that I worked with who were really renowned in the, in the history of art photography, Emmett Gowan and Frederick Sommer. Frederick Sommer is no longer alive. But both of them were shooting, for the most part, large format um, negatives, which were like either 4x5, 5x7, not so much 5x7, but 8x10. And um, tourists. So, um, yeah, that's what I started to do. And that equipment weighed a lot, and it needed, you know, to be schlepped around. And so um, I had this big car to do it with. 
And uh, I remember, you know, my first try of this, it was a four by five, four by five inches. So you have to have a, um, a black cloth that goes over your head. You're looking on a ground glass, which is basically a, um, onto which is the image that is, is being projected is coming through the lens. It's upside down and backwards. So people don't realize that in these 35 millimeter cameras and these, you know, that, that the, the image is being, if there was just the lens and there was nothing that was actually changing the way the image looked, just coming through a lens, okay, what is in front of the camera is, 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 is transmitted back through that lens upside down and backwards. And in traditional 35mm cameras and other, you know, cameras, um, not view cameras, but other cameras uh, that you can hold easily, there are mirrors inside that change that image from upside down and backwards to right side up and, you know, not backwards. So, and then you see it as it, as it is in front of you. So all that's happening, people usually don't realize that, but that's the case. So anyway... I would go out in Princeton with my my view camera and with you know and look like somebody who was from the 19th century, you know, upside down and backwards. I was looking at everything underneath a uh, a cloth, a dark cloth, you know, with my camera on a tripod, and I became like my checker, fairly distinctive. When I was at Princeton, especially junior and senior year, you know, you had to do. A special project. You had to do what's called a senior thesis, and most of those took the form of, of a written paper, a substantial written paper. It was a kind of a unique aspect of Princeton education that you did this senior thesis, the senior project. And what I, I was remembering, I was walking around Princeton, right? This is my senior year, and uh, I was in the midst of doing, it was towards the end of my senior year, middle to end of my senior year. I was starting to really kind of... Um, uh, formulate the my final project, my my senior thesis, and the thing is that the form of this, the form the the form that this took was of a photographic exhibit. It was of a, an exhibit of photographs that I would put together and um, that would be exhibited at the arts building at the end of my um, senior year, together with a paper that I wrote, which was sort of a philosophical analysis of. Um, of photography, the process, the experience, the process of, of apprehending the world through the, the camera, what that's really about. And so um, I related it to, to quantum mechanics and, and, and other aspects of philosophy. Um, it was really interesting, and I was doing this, but mostly... That, pa- that paper was only five pages long, and that went up on the wall with my photographic exhibit. But mostly what I was doing was I was photographing people, okay? I was photographing people, most, you know, my friends. And, um, and most of them were like, sort of, I was very influenced by my teachers, both of whom really appreciated the the long history of um, the trend in art in general and photography specifically of photographing you know the human body of the beauty of the human body and I had I was blessed because I had these friends who were happy to pose for me you know like unclad right and I'll remember (laughs) you know and I just but I loved you know I, I was really captivated by just the beauty, you know, the of human gesture, of human expression, and and all of this, and you know, but I was walking along one of the, 
you know, past the library one sort of late afternoon. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, all these other students are in there in that library working. All the other seniors are working on their senior thesis. And here I am, you know, with my view camera photographing my friends, unclad. But anyway, you know, my friends. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, I'm so lucky. This is fantastic. I felt free. I was free, but I really felt like I was in my own orbit, and um, I was the only photography major that year, so I really had this incredible experience with these amazing, right, photographic teachers, you know, teachers, um, photographic artists, you know, who were my teachers, so that was, uh, that was really an important, important experience. And the checker totally came in handy because I would take all this equipment around to places sort of, you know, outlying outside of Princeton. I would go with my friends. They all fit in the car. And then I'd photograph them in, in, in the woods. And, you know, I'd even take the checker into New York, into New York City. I remember going one time on Thanksgiving to um, photograph. And I would love photographing people in New York. I mean, with this large format camera often, it was quite incredible. There's something about being so obvious that you actually blend in. You know, it's a very, very weird thing, dear listener, but sometimes when you're absolutely so obvious that there's just no way you could possibly hide, you end up becoming sort of in a very interesting and paradoxical way, kind of a part of everything. And I was able to use my camera. I mean, I also used a 35-millimeter camera, which is a handheld, you know, small, much smaller camera in New York City. But I loved photographing people. I loved it. A lot of those photographs are in storage right now in the States. You know, I'm waiting to get them. It will be great to get them. So at that point, I'll probably, um, you know, I may publish some of them or, or something, you know, somehow. Uh, but um, those photographs were really, they meant a lot to me because I was... I was able to blend in, and maybe part of it was because I love, I loved and I cherish and still do um, the human experience and how people express that experience through their gestures, through their hand movements, through the looks in their eyes, the, 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 you know, look that they give each other. I remember photographing um, a young boy, and he was sitting outside a sort of tenement in New York City, and his just... You know, just his sort of, he was just himself, you know, unaware in some ways of me or aware and then unaware. I photographed on Fifth Avenue a couple in this sort of interesting embrace. He was whispering in her ear and his hand behind her back, you know, so they were sort of in this embrace and he was whispering and his hand behind her back was clutched in a fist. And I thought, wow, that is really interesting. And I photographed that, you know, I photographed them. Um, that was the kind of thing. And then when I was at this Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know, the Macy's Day Parade, very famous, right? And there are these enormous, enormous sorts of balloons, like these floats, these incredible, huge, um, inflated uh, floats, you know, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all these cartoon characters. And I was there just in the crowd, you know, and I was watching people. And I saw a girl who stood out to me just in the most incredible way. She was probably in her mid-teens. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, and um, 
She was like a still point. She was, you know, and all these people who were jostling to look at, you know, get a view of these floats going by and these huge balloons and everything. She was just looking up like a still point in this jostling world, you know, this movement, moving world. She was just there, beautiful, just looking up still. And all years later, dear listener, I, I sort of always ask myself, why, why did that image stand out to me? Why? What was it about her? What was it about that image particularly that um, left me, you know, with such an impression and feeling? And I realized in some interesting way, dear listener, that there was something about her that felt like it was, was me. It felt like it was somehow a reflection of some deep part of myself and in a way really that's what I ended up writing about at Princeton alongside the, these photographs um, was what it means to actually experience life you know through the lens a lens which gives you a doorway into the experiences the souls, the beings of other people in a way where you no longer are separate from them and they're no longer separate from you. So that's what the checker made possible and that's what photography made possible for me and so this is a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a, a podcast gift to this friend of mine who shares an abiding connection to, interest in, you know, both these things. I sort of think I'm going to pick up photography again. I haven't been doing a lot of it recently, but uh, it's a very, very beautiful thing. And now that everybody has sort of iPhones and smartphones and Samsung, Samsung has, you know, Samsung phones. These phones really give give incredible images. They 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 really are amazing, amazing, amazing. People all now hold devices that can capture the world in extraordinary ways and do you know everybody's doing it now they used to call that the Kodak moment but now I think it's like the iPhone moment um it, it it's just it's just all going on all the time all the time all the time so when I was in Princeton you know with that large format and the checker and everything it was like those processes that process was slowed way down because I had to take that huge camera that weighed probably 10 pounds, you know, somewhere between 8 and 10 pounds, out of this big case, put it on a tripod, you know, line everything up, put in these, these cut, they're called cut film holders, you know, because the, the film was literally 4 inches by 5 inches, and then later 5 by 7 inches, I had another camera after that. I mean, it was just amazing, and then you know, as I'm looking there, focusing, you know, with this dark cloth over my head. I mean, I just looked like somebody out of the 19th century. I mean, that's how they did it back then. So, um, but things have been, have moved along. Cars have gotten better and photography's gotten a lot easier. And here we are, you know, still humans, still trying to make sense of life and of our, you know, human experience individually, collectively, and uh, one can reflect back and look ahead and both at the same time. Here we are. Tomorrow's going to be, you know, New Year's Eve. New Year's, tomorrow's the last day of 2019. And then the new decade begins, right? 
So 30 hours from now, the new decade begins. That's just an incredible, incredible thing. So on that note, I just want to wish you, you know, a bounteous, beautiful, joyous, happy, healthy new year. And God bless you, all of us, and um, take good care of all yourselves, okay? Lots of love for now. All best wishes. Bye for now. Bye.